0: Hi, Adam. Thank you so much for coming on Scholars in Spotlight. Uh, This is going on for long that we are trying to like maybe modify the name a little bit because this is the name which was just given, but let's see what happens. But thank you so much for being here. Pleasure. Thanks for having Uh, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... I will do an intro, but uh, I know that you research in conflict, race, power structures, and uh, topics like unhoming or displacement. So all of these topics seems emotionally taxing. And especially what's happening these days, either it appears or it actually has increased or the awareness has increased around these topics, it must be even more harder to navigate now, you know, your, your daily research. So first of all, how do you, in your personal life, manage that kind of um, emotional uh, exhaustion? Is there a practice? I mean, how are you, have developed something? I, I'd love to know about it. <laughs> I think that one of the ways
1: that um, helps to maintain energy and excitement and um, I guess, a positive approach to the work that I do, which yet can be very emotionally um, exhausting, is the fact that a lot of my research isn't necessarily about the problems of policing and racism, isn't simply about the problems of gentrification and the, uh, the housing crisis in cities like London. It's about resistance. It's about people who are building alternatives who are challenging the systems of injustices and inequalities that they and their communities are faced with. And I think taking an approach which begins with thinking about how people are empowering themselves and each other, how they're building alternative visions of the world that they want to live in, how they're connecting with each other across communities and across the world, I think is difficult to not be inspired by. It. It's difficult to not feel um, a sense of hopefulness in the world um, when you take that approach uh, to your academic research. And I think for me, that's the one thing that really helps me to keep going with what can often be quite an emotionally taxing uh, topic. Of yeah, I can, I can,
0: yeah, 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 thanks. I can a bit now can see. That uh, a lot of people who research in human rights, you know, on different areas on corporate social responsibility, what corporations are doing, when they are talking about these issues, I realize that uh, a lot of positivity comes out that how people come together and then say that, okay, you know what, that's it, and we can do something. So, yeah, there is a bit of an antidote to it. This is brilliant. So, human geographer it's is something it's very interesting uh, it seems like uh, uh like something which i want to know more about like how this thing this kind of word has evolved so is this something you think that is somehow closely defining or or explaining what you do so human geography for people who are unfamiliar um
1: is I guess geography can be divided into two kind of broad areas. On the one hand, you have kind of physical geography, which might be the geography people are familiar with in school, where they learn about different geology, geological rocks or uh, formations in that regard, or things like the water cycle and, um, you know, the, the, um, uh, the, the physical elements of the earth. Um, but human geography is thinking about people um, and how people relate to space and place. And I think it becomes a really useful lens for understanding topics such as housing and policing because it's about um, people's relationship to their home and their community on the one hand or or the ways in which um, the state seeks to control uh, specific jurisdictions or polities on the other. And so looking at the ways in which um, different spaces and places um, become home the ways in which different spaces and places um, become controlled or that control is resisted um, by people enables us I think a really useful lens in on the one hand conceptualizing these processes of power and resistance but also I think understanding the differences between how these forms of power um, emerge in different contexts um, across the country and the planet.
0: Brilliant so um I met you in 2019 for the first time. So um, it seems like, you know, because of what the protests has been going on in the society and uh, how social media research has been coming out that, you know, there are social bubbles and then uh, there's a lot of protests against police in U.S. Um, I mean, we can't ignore it, you know, because U.S. is something which somehow makes news all over the world. I actually am confused genuinely uh, that what it is now, is it that the problems have actually increased in the last few years or the awareness around the problems have increased? So that's why the noise or the power structures themselves is somehow weakening so there is a lot of resistance which somehow seeps through it. I mean, what is it? Or is it just the perception because of social media? We think that the uh, these issues are somehow you know, increasing.
1: I think there are maybe three or four key reasons why uh, in the summer of 2020, we've seen some of the largest anti-racist protests in both American history and British history, and potentially even the world. I think one of them is... Um, Of course, uh, the spark of these uh, protests, right? The police killing of George Floyd, which um, it was difficult not to find traumatising, harrowing these slow, effectively being tortured to death in a very public way. I think the second is the fact that there is um, a wider concern, I think, with racism and nationalism across the world particularly in places like Britain and the United States being defined by the Trump administration in the US and Brexit and the Boris Johnson administration in the United Kingdom. And you saw this in a lot of the placards and the things that people were chanting and saying at the protests, which were as much about Boris Johnson and and Donald Trump as they were about uh, the questions of police violence and racism. Um, And I think the third thing is the fact that both Britain and the United States, and much of the world, are facing facing some other crises at the moment, which I think have fermented popular discontent. Uh, the most obvious one, of course, being the health crisis, which is which a lot of people consider to be very seriously mismanaged by the governments of both Britain and the United States, with Black people being more likely to contract and die of um, COVID nineteen, and and I think it is. Um, I think the pandemic has illuminated a lot of existing inequalities for people but also the other kind of crises that are being faced the looming environmental crisis economic crisis all of these different crises I think have all lend themselves to, I think, a perfect storm, which has led to um, the, the protests that we've seen in the summer of this year, which, as, as I said, was, have, was sparked by a police killing, but I think speak to um, uh, wider concerns about racism, nationalism and injustice um, across the world
0: so i actually had some encounters uh with police and also home office as you can imagine i've i've I'm born in pakistan so i've lived here and it was uh it's yeah it's interesting i mean you have to really understand that uh your encounter is with the machinery and system not this one individual because it is it would be really hard you would i mean i mean if i i, I can understand i meet with people and they had a deep trauma around these interaction of forced searches somehow the they come in and interview you in a very interesting way let's say that and uh, but um i can understand that you, you they sometimes think after this kind of interaction that you know like like the humanity itself you know they doubt humanity their own humanity itself but Uh, When I had it, I can see it because of maybe, I don't know, maybe I've studied it a little bit, the sociology. So I could see that this is very interesting that the person I'm interacting with really believes that what they are doing is somehow perfectly fine, that they have to eliminate this person because of very specific background. And there's a quota system. Um, Now um, I, I don't know if it is true or not but is there a real like, like a difference between these kind of systems um, like British police and US police their immigration or US immigration and UK's immigration are there any differences and uh, if there are how do we sitting here you know distinguish between these two or is there a point distinguishing between these two because um, do we somehow engage in a different way if we are trying to understand and reform it i mean that's that's one of the reasons why i I just wanted to ask this difference
1: so Of course, there are a number of material differences between um, immigration, uh, maybe counter terror or um, other kinds of anti-crime um, policies and practices between the United Kingdom and the United States. Um, I mean, one obvious example is that um, in the United States, um, entrapment is very common, whereas entrapment is illegal in the United Kingdom. So, in the United States, um, uh, a CIA agent can go to a mosque and convince someone to um, uh, to uh, help them put together a bomb, and then as soon as they um, agree to do that, they can arrest them immediately and say, ha, I was a police officer all along, or a, or a police officer can um, stand on a street corner offering people drugs, um, and if someone um, uh, goes up to buy those drugs, they can say, ha, I was a police officer all along, and arrest you. Um, that That's actually illegal in the United Kingdom, right? So that's maybe one really kind of simple example of the differences um, in policing in the United States and the United Kingdom. But... The patterns of policing are very, very similar. The logic of policing is very, very similar. So the idea that there are suspect communities in both Britain and the United States um, uh, overlaps enormously. So the idea that there are black communities which should be considered suspect communities um, and therefore should be policed differently, uh, should be policed um, as if they have a a certain propensity for violence, a certain propensity for immorality and deviance um, uh, pervades both British and American policing. Comparable things could be said of Muslim communities or perceived Muslims. Similar things could be said about uh, migrant communities or people who maybe... uh, be suspected of being undocumented, and so we can see very similar patterns um, in both the US and the UK. But but they might be manifested differently, right? So uh, in the United States, for instance, you have a, a very very large uh, black Muslim population, um, whereas in the United Kingdom, most of our most of our Muslim population is of South Asian heritage. Right, so you have comparable forms of um, the policing of Muslim communities, but the, that America are t- kind of targeting different racialized groups of people or for instance most of the uh, suspected undocumented people um in the united states are people from latin america whereas that's not the case in the united kingdom and a lot of the people in the united kingdom who are suspected of being undocumented are from africa or asia or the middle east so again you've got very similar types of policing, um, searching for people who are undocumented, um, potentially um, interrogating them, raiding their places of work, raiding their homes, um, incarcerating them in detention centres, attempting to deport them, all of these types of things. But you might have different uh, communities of people who are uh, the targets um, of this particular type of policing. And so I think it is useful to you know, identify the distinctions, particularly for uh, researchers uh, who want to make sure their research is accurate, but also I think for communities and campaigners who want to be challenging um, the the kinds of uh, forms of discrimination or inequality or injustice um, that arise through these patterns of policing. But I think it's also fundamental for us to not treat the UK and the United States as fundamentally different. Um, And identifying the connections and patterns I think is incumbent upon us particularly given the global nature of these campaigns of resistance that we've seen in the summer of 2020.
0: That's true. I mean, I I think sometimes well, my experience could have been uh, maybe down to individual. They are maybe empathetic. They have trained better. Sometimes that's what I've realized that if someone, uh, mostly home office, they probably are not trained as well as, well as uh police constable so I, I could see that um, going through the motions the appearance of interacting with um, the suspect you know well, what is suspect for them is better if someone is highly trained uh, although um, to, to to really uh, and this is what I'm asking you right now I mean this is what I I came out after having this kind of interaction that it is understandable to to see the history of UK or US or, or let's talk about UK. This is my interaction. That um, this is a system which is designed to you know somehow filter some things. And at some point, I don't know. I mean, you don't want to let. Of course, you know there's this concept uh, that okay, you don't want to let someone in, which is really dangerous. But that is a very murky construct concept because you know. You can just brand anyone dangerous, as you are saying, according to however they look like or where the passport is from. Uh, So yeah, fundamentally, okay, that's fine. You got to keep the people safe. But how the system has been designed, you have, like, I think I, I saw it that what it is designed for, like home office, really, even the name, home office, it makes sense that they would see someone from a country and they would treat them like that. As in, it was not like, uh, it is a shocking behavior at first for me, but reflecting upon it, it does make more functional sense, not sense in a way that, Oh yeah, it's, this is morally okay. I'm just uh, saying that it definitely seems like what it should be doing. Like it's doing its job right by traumatizing and intimidating people, and making the entry as hard as possible. I mean, is that something which makes sense, uh, how you have researched around these things? I think it makes sense in the logic of the
1: British states. I think the world would be a very peculiar place if every country in the world treated people who arrived in their country in the way that Britain treats the people who arrive in their country. I think the world would be a bizarre (laughs) place. Um, There has never been so much control over the movements of people today as there has ever been in human history. We have more borders, more policing of our borders, more control over movements than there has ever been. Um, And I don't know if that's necessarily led to an increase in public safety. I don't know if that's necessarily led to an improvement in the lives of people. Um, I think that, therefore, when we think about why Britain um, is so intent on controlling um, uh, people entering its borders, it may be useful for us to think about what Britain's foreign policy is. It may be useful to think about the ways in which Britain is implicated in um, forms of uh, perhaps political disorder um, uh, or political injustices in different parts of the world which compel people to move. Forms of economic underdevelopments and exploitation which compel people to migrate to countries like Britain which are far wealthier where many, much of the resources and wealth of the world continue to flow in ways that are comparable to um, uh, the the, close, the flows of uh, wealth during the colonial period. It might be useful for us to um, ask ourselves why it is that um, large numbers of people from countries like Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria and Libya seek to migrate to parts of Europe um, following the either invasions, occupations or bombings of these particular regions of the world. And so when we think about borders in the co- in this more global context, um, I, think it should, well, I think we should be unsurprised that the uh, regions of the world which um, benefit from the exploitation of land, Of resources of people in so many parts of the world seek to also regulate the movement of those people into their borders um, even if there's very little or a very different kind of regulation of the land of the resources and wealth um, from those parts of the world uh, entering uh, the borders of britain
0: yeah um i think this is a this is a very deep personal point i think for me growing up in pakistan let's say and people over there still feel emotionally in their lives, some sort of an impact. And they talk about it all the time. Even the generations, my generation, which is the third generation, so my grandfather, uh, well, it, this is what you say, they fought against the East India Company. Um, and uh, so yeah, he would tell stories. So I would remember them really fresh. So now we growing up one generation removed still i think uh that there there's an expression over there they say the reason why we come to britain is because you stole everything like literally they say <laughs> this and it's a very common sentence and i actually what when you were talking about i did realize that this is a very interesting connection uh, that um that how even now I mean what are the effects of colonialism now because everyone would now see that oh yeah colonialism gone like in but I guess if you see in Africa in South Asian countries where the effects of colonialism are still uh, somehow indirectly seeping in uh, this movement does seems really interesting also companies um There's this documentary, which you might have seen, uh, Vironga, which is about, uh, it's a very interesting documentary in Africa. This is a park uh, where they're trying to save this wildlife species and conserve nature. But there is one British company, which is trying to... um, yeah, just just somehow gain influence, you know, bribing um, army and uh, um, the government officials to try to gain more in influences. So so, and yeah, so so you can't they can't do anything much about it. And it's it's a brilliant documentary. I would suggest the listeners if they haven't seen it, it would be really interesting. It would actually tell a little bit more somehow what could be the effects of colonialism, but. I, I Yeah, I, I think I would like to know more because these are the kind of things, these kind of connections, which we don't make anymore. Because it's been nearly nearly a 100 years, 70 years, 1947 or 45, whatever, after the World War, then when, when was the last time the empire fell?
1: Um, yeah, well, I guess, yeah, for parts of South Asia, it was 1945. But for uh, parts of the African continents, we begin to see decolonization in 1958, up until uh, the late 1960s. For parts of the Caribbean, it was the 1970s. I mean, my mother grew up under British colonial rule, and St. Lucia didn't get its independence until the late 1970s. Um, so it was, of course, uneven. But yeah, between 1945 and the 1970s um, was, I guess, the period of decolonization. So we're really only a generation away from colonialism, right? Most of our parents... Um, Uh, grew up either as colonial subjects or as um, in the center of empire, as an imperial nation. Um, And so to think that the global world order, which was constructed through colonialism, and this is important to to note, right, that um, colonialism didn't simply just take away the sovereignty of um, different lands and peoples and exploit those peoples and exploit their resources. It created a global world order. Right? which placed European nations and its settler colonies in Australia and North America at the top of this global world order. And so the, and this global world order didn't crumble when the formal um, uh, colonial um, uh, uh, structures were dismantled. Right? That global world order remains. And we should be unsurprised that two, three centuries of power, of wealth, of control, were once immediately undone when the formal um, uh, systems of colonialism um, were, um, were broken. And so of course, therefore, Britain and, country- and other former colonial powers and countries um, and Europe set the colonies in North America and North Australia still hold enormous wealth and power both whether it be military power or economic power or cultural diplomatic power all of these forms of power which they were able to um uh, accumulate during centuries of colonialism are now continually being um uh, used to maintain that global order and of course whilst the um I would say that the West is in, in decline, in slow decline, um, and other con- other regions of the world, particularly China, are on the rise. Um, we still, of course, see those colonial legacies maintaining a global order um, which places Europe and its set economies um, in the most powerful positions.
0: Uh, I actually just about the uh, th- this this paper you wrote about uh, your trip. To South Africa. Um, I actually want to know, this was a very interesting trip. You described some things very emotionally and graphically, and this is a bit related to the movement about roads must fall, which was the statue in Oxford. Uh, I actually want to know um, what you were describing symbols and colonial symbols somehow. Uh, Parallel to what this new generation over there in Africa, university students, were trying to convey. I, I actually want to hear from you that kind, that experience. Uh,
1: so, for people who are unfamiliar, which I, I I'm sure most people are familiar, uh, Roads Must Fall was a campaign that began in the University of Cape Town in South Africa. Um, one of the things I guess that's, I guess, for a bit of context, um, after the fall of apartheid in South Africa one of the agreements was that black people would get political freedom but there wouldn't be economic reform uh, white people still own the land in South Africa and own and can own and control uh, much of the economy And so while there was um, a great deal of political reform in South Africa, which enabled black people to have the votes and other kind of civil freedoms and rights, um, and the ANC government in South Africa was able to invest a great deal of um, uh, resources into education, most black people still live in the same townships that their parents and grandparents grew up in under apartheid, in, in very similar conditions. And so universities like the University of Cape Town set up during the apartheid era Um, or the the colonial era, I should say, um, which were only for white people, are now full of black students, right? Learning in these very well-resourced historic um, universities that look look and feel them very similar ways to a university like Oxford Cambridge or UCL or Durham. But there are many students who study at these universities who live and grew up and still live in townships who... Um, haven't really felt the material benefits of uh, the end of apartheid rule Um, don't have positive job prospects um, because of the fact that um, there wasn't really an economic revolution only a political revolution in South Africa after the end of apartheid and I think that and one of the architects or one of the main ideologues of apartheid in southern Africa was Cecil Rhodes and his statue sits in the center of the campus of uh, the University of Cape Town and so while students were campaigning to have that statue removed saying that Rhodes must fall it wasn't about simply a statue which offended them or was um, you know a symbol of a racist or a mean person that oppressed their ancestors and um it was the way in, It was a. It was a conduit. It was a way into a wider conversation about injustices, um, in both uh, in the university and beyond it. Not only the fact that the university was still run by uh, managers, administrators, and academics from the clone, from the uh, apartheid era um, and teaching very similar uh, courses and syllabi, but also the fact that. Um, the economic situation in South Africa hasn't changed significantly since the end of apartheid either. And so the Roads Must Fall campaign was simultaneously a campaign for freedom and autonomy for students, but also about freedom and autonomy for the black population of the country. In, here in the United Kingdom, um, Oxford University also has a statue of Cecil Rhodes. Um, due to uh, the great riches that he accumulated from the colonisation of Southern Africa, being used to fund uh, educational scholarships and buildings in uh, institutions like Oxford, and so a solidarity campaign arose um, in Oxford University while I was um, carrying out my PhD there, which also called for this uh, statue to be removed and looks at the ways in which Oxford University today is implicated in forms of modern imperialism, whether it be the fact that uh, Shell Oil fund its geosciences um, centre, which um, uh, has been implicated in forms of imperialism in uh, parts of Nigeria, for, for instance, or the fact that BP Oil Um, fund its um, centre for the study of resource-rich economies um, which has been implicated in forms of imperialism uh, in parts of the Middle East or whether arms companies or um, other weapons manufacturers um, uh, fund its engineering departments which are implicated in forms of militarism uh, in other parts of the world. So it was a solidarity movement um, in that regard and so I was fortunate enough to visit South Africa as part of uh, this kind of campaign work that we were doing um, and visit uh, the University of Rhodes, named after Cecil Rhodes, um, uh, visit uh, University of Cape Town, uh, visit Witts University um, in Johannesburg as well and work with the stu- learn with the uh, students in South Africa about the struggles that they were engaged in both within Uh, the confines of the campus and beyond them um, as well and uh, this paper that the paper that you're describing um, I guess comes out of that those experiences of uh, learning from uh, these activist students and the academics that were supporting them as well as um, I guess my wider experiences uh, visiting South Africa and main building those links of solidarity between uh, the struggles here in Britain and and those abroad.
0: Beautiful yeah I mean I Truly, hope from the bottom of my heart that um, at, at so many different levels we have these very painful conflicts uh, from long history. I mean, I've grown up in Pakistan. I've visited Iran, Iraq. I mean, Middle East is still like the hub of crisis between different sects, different kind of races, um, religious ideologies, and then and then we you know and then the civilization for start to form you know, over the history and then we have another layer of conflicts fueled by power i really hope hope like <clears throat> that we can somehow with not really destroying each other can solve these issues uh and and evolve really i mean we i think at this point it looks like that what as as humans what we were we are not anymore those humans who lived in those hunting gathering tribes not it just doesn't feel like they really were a very different creature i mean as much as i've read about them and not not in a good way or a bad way it's just it's just different completely different way of lifestyle relating to others and How many of them have egalitarian societies, and probably it's because of the size they had and the number of population and what was limiting them. And this um, marriage of uh, science and imperialism is just put imperialism, science, and capitalism gave an insane engine to certain qualities of humans and you know we are made out of these feedback loops so i guess we definitely are very different from those humans which might have lived 30 30000 years ago 35000 years ago so i think yeah we thank you for like doing this work because i think we have to evolve somehow whatever we are to to see the similarities i mean otherwise the species is in pain like overall our species is in so much pain and struggle and conflict that uh these kind of uh, issues would either be solved by we evolving or we would definitely go down and that's it i mean it, it's I, I what you're saying it looks like that it's not just that emotionally we are damaging each other we are damaging our habitat because of that power and because of the wealth and greed, I would say that that, that <laughs> bottomless hole, which sometimes humans find uh, because of the uh, subjective urges, that, um, that that kind of an accumulation is harming um, the, the earth itself. I mean, it's to simply say that. Uh, But you you talked about your mother, uh, and then uh, that that she grew up like firsthand experience under um, the under the under the empire, let's say, or a falling empire. I mean, how? So, what is your story? I mean, how uh, did you were you born here in UK, or I mean, what are this what kind of uh, um, ecosystem were you growing up in, and then as you were growing up. How did you map the world growing up? I mean, if you are comfortable, love to know your personal experience around it.
1: Yeah, sure. No, So um, I grew up in um, Redbridge, um, which uh, is a London borough um, in the east of London. Uh, so it borders uh, East London and, and Essex. So it has uh, Newham and uh, Wolfram Forest on the London side and then Barking and Dagenham on the Essex side. Um, and... Uh, growing up in that area, um, I guess I was able to, well, I guess growing up in a home where my mum grew up in Hackney and was affected by, I guess, uh, the kind of anti-racist movements that exist in, in areas like Hackney in the 1970s and 80s. Um, and she passed on, I guess, those experiences and that kind of politics to me. And That was very influential uh, for my thinking. But also, I guess, uh, growing up in At the border of East London and Essex, um, meant that experiences of injustice or racism were not not things that were uncommon um, uh, uh, for uh, growing up in that in that particular area. But I guess I really kind of began getting interested in politics and activism uh, when I got to university. I mean, I was interested in politics already. I was, you know, I went to study politics for my undergraduate degree, Um, but uh, I think I became particularly interested um, in campaigning work. Um, when I began experiencing racism at university as well, I thought the university would be this enlightened place, um, where everyone would be, um, you know, well-read and worldly and open-minded and all those types of things. And that certainly wasn't the case at all. Um, and I think it also, um, really came to a head when, um, uh, I started doing youth work as well, um, whilst at university and working with, uh, people uh young people um and um to run kind of social action projects or educational initiatives um to think through the kinds of problems that they were facing in their community and think about the connections between what i was learning at university what people were experiencing um in their everyday day lives in those in their different communities and how we could build i could build connections between i guess the theory and the practice
0: so um were you looking when you were growing up as a, as a teenager and then in, in a university um, to the to UK, I assume, and then maybe the world or whatever stories your mother have told you about her life um, as, as like a migration? Because everyone has like their lens when they start looking at the world. Like I have my lens. I grew up similar as you were describing going to this very upper class school but living in a very um, traditional tribe community and that kind of diversification gave a lot of uh, spark in my ideas because i go in the morning there where there are canadians uh, gener- a lot of canadians in my school and Americans. And then I go back to my very tribal, traditional, and tribe in a very, uh, when I'm referring to tribe, I'm referring it in the most positive way uh, as possible. Um, so, how, so this is like my worldview was growing up. I mean, uh, how would you, if you're looking back at, at yourself as a teenager, how would a human geographer now, you know, an experienced one, would see a person's experience be like, Uh Aha! Like this is very interesting. Like is like how this young person is tracking how the world looks like. Uh, I don't know. Does this make sense?
1: I think one of the things you're pointing to here is the ways in which space is constructed. Right, so space doesn't simply exist in the world in a, in a very natural form. Human beings and societies construct space. And so when we move from one geographical location or one geographical context to another, um, the power structures change, uh, the, the ways in which we're identified changes, uh, the way in which we sometimes uh, speak. Or act or think um, has to shift in order for us to better navigate those particular spaces. And the ways in which these particular spaces are controlled, are policed, um, often changes as well. And so I imagine when you move from one space to another, because of the kind of institution, institutional power that's held within the school in comparison to your village or community, the kind of um, uh, cultural power which is dominant in these two different spaces um, means that the way in which you have to interact with these two different spaces is fundamentally different as well. And I think that that's something that we all have to um, contend with. Um, or most of us have to contend with uh, if we are have come come from migrant communities or um, we might have come from uh, a lower income background and end up in a more middle class uh, job Um, all of these types of things require us to navigate these different spaces um, in different ways
0: so you mentioned that you experienced a bit of racism or racism in university I actually am very interested to know that was it I mean what kind of yeah I mean please. It, it doesn't have to, you don't have to like, I mean, if you're not comfortable to say exact thing, I, I mean, yeah, please go on.
1: Um, uh, so yeah, there were a few kind of campaigns that were run um, when I was, I guess, first or second year students, um, which were quite formative for me, where uh, I guess elected officials and like high profile people on campuses said or did very racist things. And we ran campaigns, Uh, to have them uh, no longer in positions of power within the university Um, but probably one of the most well-known campaigns was um, uh, a campaign that that was carried out in support of two friends of ours um, who were arrested um, on campus um, in 2007 if I remember correctly and uh, so uh, in, in our politics department, uh, there was a former military um, officer called Dr. Rod Thornton, who was now a lecturer, in, and he ran a course in terrorism studies, or a module in terrorism studies. Right? So he'd done counterterrorism work in Iraq, Afghanistan, etc. And um, a friend of ours, uh, Rizwan Sabir, took his course took his module, Um, he was doing politics undergraduates. Um, And on uh, Dr. Rod Thornton's reading list was a um, Al-Qaeda training manual, which had been declassified by the United States. Um, So it was available on the United States website, you could buy it off Amazon. And so this formed part of the uh, studies um, uh, for this terrorism course. So our other friend Hisham um, had finished his degree at the university and was now working as as an administrator at the university. Um, And Rizwan um, asked Hisham to use his administrative privileges to print off some of his readings for his module. Um, So he emailed over the readings, Hisham printed them off, gave them to Rizwan, um, that's the end of it. Um, A few weeks later, someone was using Hisham's computer another member of staff, and saw this uh, desktop icon, Al-Qaeda training manual, and called the police immediately. Uh, the police raided Hisham's office. Um, they found that the email was sent from Rizwan. They raided Rizwan's home. They raided Hisham's home. They arrested them both, um, imprisoned them for about a week, uh, charged them both with terrorist, terrorism offences. Um, and the university was very complicit in all of this and tried to help the police. Um In this, despite the fact that Dr. Ford Thornton was very angry about this, Um, and despite the fact that he isn't, you know, you know, a big anti-racist activist, he was very angry that his students are being arrested for carrying out the reading that that he's asked them to do. Um, And so there was a big campaign um, to um, exonerate these two. all this student and this staff member um, and uh, challenge the criminalisation and the racism uh, and the profiling that they were facing at the university. And I think that had a really profound impact as well um, on uh, on my my understanding of racism as not simply being something that is carried out by individual bigots and people who are prejudiced, but something which is um, principally carried out by the state um, and uh, agents of the states, in this case,
0: the police. How, I mean, uh, yeah, this might be, it's Skip, if you think this is an unrelated question, but as an eagle eye view, looking at humans, um, whatever you have read in your research, and uh, before we all moved into civilization, let's say, what do you what do you think? I mean, as you mentioned that you know it's not just one person you know, suddenly feeling like that they are above than the other because of how they look, but it is a much complex issue. Maybe it is a different. Could be a state level. Could be a um, um like a continent level. Uh, could could be married with different things. What is your uh, idea on it? Uh, like what is Kind of happening. However, you have seen it or or read it. So, I would say that
1: institutions of power, um, from feudalism um, to to the emergence of capitalism in the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries, have always found it useful to classify groups of human beings in different ways in order to more effectively exploit, and control, and if necessary, impose violence upon them if we think about the example of Europe for instance uh, this is something that um, was imposed upon Jewish people in Europe um, in uh, the 15 or 1600s um, upon Slavic people um, who migrated from Eastern Europe into parts of Western Europe um, in the feudal periods the pre-capitalist in pre-capitalist Europe it was something that was imposed upon uh, Irish people um, in in as early as the 15th and 16th um, uh, hundreds and this process of classific- classifying different groups of people um uh, uh, into different categories effectively in order to more effectively exploit them or differently exploits them differently uh, control them really um accelerated with the emergence of capitalism and imperialism in the 16 and 1700s and with european expansion um uh, to the Americas across the African continents across uh, much of South Asia and parts of Southeast Asia and of course Australia as well and classifying these different um, the different peoples, for, for, with which they came into contact and therefore exploiting them differently some of them were were in, of course enslaved some of them were indentured uh, some of them were uh, seemed to not be necessary at all and therefore exterminated as was the case in Australia and and much of the Americas um, uh, some of them and uh, some of them became wage workers came, some of them became workers right particularly the, the white working class of Europe and so with the expansion of capitalism um, in the 1700s the and 1800s, what you begin to see is the, I guess, the, um, the cementing and the fixing of these different, not the fixing, but the, um, the proliferation of these racial categories, which is, becomes more and more necessary for capitalism to differently exploit different cat- categories of people across the planet. And today we call those people races right um, this is where we see the emergence of race become really fundamentally important simply as i said for capitalist exploitation right you guys are going to work as slave labor you guys are going to be indentured labor you guys are not necessary for us so we're basically going to leave you to die or kill you um you guys are going to earn a wage but not a very good one one that you can only just about live on um what, <laughs> um You know, um, being uh, exploited in these different kinds of ways, which was useful in different ways for capitalism, but also the fact that they are controlled in different ways and and, uh, violence is imposed upon them in different ways, which relates, I guess, slightly to what we were talking about earlier, where some people might be um, uh, controlled or policed because of some kind of uh, anti gangs policing initiative, and others might be controlled and policed because of of some kind of anti terror policing initiatives, and other people might be controlled and policed because of some. Kind of anti-immigrant policing initiative, we can see the ways in which these different categories of people, quote unquote, races of people, um, are are useful and um, become really necessary um, for uh, these imperial um, or post-imperial uh, nations to uh,
0: expand and maintain their power. So, is this uh, this relates to I think this concept of profiling, which? Uh... Comes to which intelligence agencies do it. They have, uh, like, pro, I think you might be able to explain profiling better to people than me. But um, do you think that concept, for the sake of efficiency, has deeply problematic issues? Or, I mean, please. Um.
1: So I think that profiling is the outcome of the process of categorization that I just mentioned. So first you have this process of categorization, categorizing different human beings in order to differently exploit control or impose violence upon them. And the outcome of that system of racial categorization is profiling, right? So on the kind of macro level, on the macro level is where you see groups of people and populations being categorized differently. And then on the kind of micro level, that leads to prejudice, Right? On an individual level, um, that leads to prejudice and profiling. And so, what we see on a kind of yeah one to one basis might be a police officer profiling an individual, or an employer profiling somebody who comes to a job interview, or, um, or, or you know, or something um, of that nature. But that is the that is the outcome of this wider system of mm-hmm. categorization to exploit, control, and impose violence.
0: Brilliant. Uh, so we're coming back to UK. Have you seen any change or any kind of um, improvement or not in these in these all, all different kind of issues we are talking about? Interaction with different communities, migrant communities, BAM communities, um, the the policing itself and the structures which are now, you know, well, in the past were governing or kind of participating in the world order. Externally in foreign policy and also internally within UK. I mean, in last few decades, couple of decades, let's say, what are the changes? What are what has gone worse and what has gone better? Or if nothing, you know, some things have remained exactly how they were.
1: Well, certainly nothing has remained um, exactly how it was, that, and that's something. That's the only thing we can be certain of. I think, <laughs> yeah. um, I think that I think that in many ways. Um, the rise of uh, the kind of white nationalism or resurgent nationalism that people might associate with Trump or Brexit or maybe to a lesser extent, uh, Boris Johnson and others, in one way should be considered a threat and a problem and a defeat for anti-racism. But I think at the same time, when it also does, it indicates that it indicates that, that kind of overt nationalism is a kind of desperate attempt to maintain control. It's not the kind of comfortable, um, uh, uh, slick, well-polished PR um, uh, racism that we might associate with uh, Tony Blair uh, or um, that that kind of um, approach to uh, policing and governance and exploitation and imperialism, which can present itself as being progressive and multicultural and cosmopolitan um and has very broad a broad consensus across multiple sections of society but can still invade iraq and kill a couple of million people and um, privatize uh, public services and uh, increase levels of inequality and deregulate the financial sector which leads to the financial crisis of 2007 2008 which then leads to austerity and all of these other things whereas today the nation is divided. Um, on the one hand you have the success of the Brexit movements, this movement of nationalism, um, of colonial nostalgia and in many ways of, of certainly of anti-migrant sentiments and, and, and I think ma- in many ways different articulations of racism. But on the other hand you have what we, we saw in the summer of this year, the largest anti-racist protests in British history, not only ta- taking place in large multicultural cities like Bristol or Birmingham or Liverpool or London but also in small towns and villages across the nation which have never seen anti-racist mobilizations before and have people who have rarely if ever come into contact um, with people from uh, racialized minorities and I think one of the things that people in those smaller communities of England or Britain um, are saying is that they recognise the fact that they are the target constituency for the Brexit agenda, for this agenda of white nationalism. And I think by attending these anti-racist mobilizations, they're saying, no, we don't want to be the target constituency of this resurgent nationalism. We don't want to be the target constituency of this anti-migrant sentiment and this popular racism. We want a different vision of the country and we want a different vision for the world. And I think... In many ways, um, it's all to play for. um, And it's up to us as as the agents of history to decide uh, which direction this country and the world turns.
0: Beautiful. Just the last few things. Um, This line, uh, actively rethink and dismantle imperialism's afterlife by unlearning and unjust global hierarchies of knowledge production on which much of the empire's legacy was based. Uh, I find it really interesting. and I think we were we are talking about this right now, as in what kind of directions we should take. and what what, should, what what have you learned and what do you think these lines mean to you, and what are the steps forward if we have to dismantle and untangle those tight ropes which somehow squeeze the prosperity out of people?
1: So I think that particular line is thinking about knowledge production, um, and I think a lot. It's interesting that a lot of the posters and placards and chants that we saw in the protests of the summer of twenty twenty were, if they weren't about Trump and Brexit or Boris Johnson, and they weren't about policing and immigration, they were about education. They were about the curriculum. They were about they were about what we learn in our schools and what we learn in our universities. They were about what we consider to be. Um, useful knowledge what we consider to be sophisticated knowledge what we consider to be important knowledge production and places and spaces where proper or useful or influential or moral knowledge production um, takes place and so I think one of the ways in which we can think about um, within the university how we can make sure that our work is a part of these these global movements of resistance is thinking about the kind of knowledge that we produce and asking ourselves whether the knowledge that we produce reproduces dominance power structures reproduces the assumptions of imperialism that europe and its settler colonies is where all useful knowledge is produced and has always been produced we ask ourselves whether um the work that we produce um, the knowledge that we produce identifies the ways in which imperialism has shaped the planet and shapes our perceptions of the world and we should also ask ourselves about the, the political economy of our universities as well the extent to which our universities might be implicated in investments in the arms trade or oil companies or the pharmaceutical industry or all of these other global circuits of of, of international capitalism which continue to exploit um the land and the earth as well as its people in ways that are wholly destructive um, and not only threaten to continually reproduce colonial relations in ways that are not dissimilar to those experienced by uh, previous generations but also of course threats the, the existence of the planet that we live on itself
0: Beautiful I think we can I think we can end it here I would I, I, I mean yeah. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for doing it. Yeah. Cool. No problem
1: at all. Yeah, pleasure. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's brilliant, brilliant.